Paul says, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. And Father, we ask that by the power of your spirit and just the great love that you have for us, Lord, that's never failed us. Right now this morning, Lord, we ask in this gathering that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would speak to us again that which we need to hear, that you'd bless your word, that it would speak to our hearts things that are helpful for us. So we ask now, Lord, that you'd give us an ear to hear and a heart to receive. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it is a four-letter word that we'd all probably do well to be a little bit more careful in regards to saying so freely. And no, it's not profanity, of course. This is church. But probably it is one of the most abused as well as, honestly, the most misused words, I think, today in the English language. And, of course, it is the word love. If you just think about the reality, we say, I love ice cream. We say, I love football or I love basketball. We may say, gals anyway, I hope, I love my shoes. I love my outfit. I love my car. I love my wife and kids so much. We even say, I love the Lord. But I would venture to say that same word love is likely having different degrees of importance and dedication in regards to what we actually mean when we talk about loving all those different things. So the word love kind of becomes a bit blurred in such common usage. In some ways, you have to wonder if that's why the Greek language, which was a very sophisticated language, actually had at least four different words they used to express the idea of love. They had the word storge, which was a term that spoke of natural familial love, that is the love that would be experienced among family members, parents and children, and brothers and sisters. That was the family love, storge. There was eros, which was a term that spoke of romantic passion between a husband and a wife, and that was a term they would particularly use in connection to that. There was phileo, which spoke of friendship love, or like a brotherly fondness. The idea is that you really enjoy the companionship of another person, and so you had a real friendship love, a partnership-type love. That was phileo. And then ultimately there came about the word agape, which was a word that was not used, we believe, in the original classical Greek language for some time, but actually most believe was created during the time of the New Testament writing in order to find a term to describe God's divine love, which was so much different than all the different forms of human love that they actually created the word agape to try and somehow describe God's love. It speaks of the highest form of love, and it refers to a self-sacrificing love, a giving love, a love that honestly is not rooted in feelings nor emotions. It's not dependent upon another person's condition. It's not dependent upon how they treat us 
or the way that they relate to us. It is a love of choice. It is a decision to love in an unconditional way, and it's not a response to how we're being loved, as honestly most other loves typically to some degree are dependent upon how we're being treated or how we're being loved, and then in a reciprocal way, we love in response. This love is nothing to do with that, nor is it a love that's wanting something in return for its kindness. It simply initiates care and kindness for another. This agape love is driven by pure concern for someone else's welfare. And the sole object of this agape love is such care and concern for others that we are willing to sacrifice in order to greatly help them or bless them or bring them happiness or benefit in their life. And of course, this highest form of love agape is the love that God has towards us. That's pretty obvious. God, simply because he is love, the Bible says, because he's loving, he has this unconditional, self-sacrificing, generous, giving love towards us because he is loving. And it is the love that he asks us as his children, those of us who are now children of God, who possess, you might say, his spiritual DNA by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. It's the love he asks us then as Christians to have for one another, to have for other people. And it is this term, the agape term for love, used here in chapter 13, and it is the most commonly used term for love throughout the entirety of the New Testament. It describes the love God has for us and how we are to express love for others. Now, I know I'm not giving you a newsflash to tell you that our current culture is deeply confused and is misguiding, sadly, so many in regards to what love really is. People claim to love a person or they say they're doing certain things because love is what's directing them. And yet, sadly, all the while, that what they think or feel as love to themselves or what they perceive love is or perceive what love is for another person is completely contradictory to what God, who is the author of not only mankind, but the author of love, it's completely contradictory to what God reveals true love really is. What genuine, healthy, pure love really is. So God clearly tells us what proper love is. He shows us what real love, pure love looks like in this section by clarifying that for us. God says, let me make it extremely evident. This is what true love, agape, pure, perfect love really looks like when it's in operation. And I tell you, we would benefit well, not just to see these phrases here that I read in 1 Corinthians 13, like nice poetry, or like a nice plaque for your house, right? We may have one of those in your home. Or, or something to be read at a wedding because it sounds a lot about you know, how a couple should love one another. But instead, that we would embrace the truths and digest them and let them become a part of our being to help us to try and actually exercise the love that God wants us to show towards one another to guide us in that. Because Jesus clearly emphasized that we do have a responsibility as Christians to walk in love. Remember, Jesus declared this, John 13. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love, there's our term agape, that you agape love one another. 
as I have loved you, that is taking the same love Jesus showed as God, that you now love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples, that is my devoted followers, if you have love for one another. Interesting. Of all the things Jesus said that could be the most important characterizing mark of a committed Christ follower, of a devoted Christian, Jesus didn't say that would be measured by spiritual maturity could be measured by spirituality could be characterized by all these other things that maybe we think or people have given us the idea that, wow, that's a spiritual person because they do that during a church service or that's a spiritual person because they have this giftedness. Jesus said, no, this is how people will know that you're my disciples, that you're truly a committed follower of me by agape love being shown towards one another. Jesus said that would be the most supreme evidence from his perspective and really to others because think of the world we live in. It is so filled with hate, right, and selfishness and unkindness that this kind of love is it's peculiar because people don't necessarily behave this way naturally. None of us do. So therefore, the love of God is a very, very powerful thing in its influence upon people's lives. Remember, Paul wants the Corinthian believers to know, as we've been seeing, that the measure of spiritual maturity is not how gifted a person is, but it's how much of the grace of love is an operation in their everyday life. And he stops here dead center in this discussion from chapters 12 through the end of chapter 14 about spiritual gifts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the church to say the central issue in the whole matter, as we saw last time, is love. That that's the central issue. Love for one another is the basis of spiritual experience as the motive for exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We should earnestly desire the gifts, but he said, I want to show you the most advantageous way. And it was the way of love. And he began last time describing the supremacy of love. Let's just read through it again, verses one through three. Remember, Paul said, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, if love's not in my heart, he says, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. In other words, just an obnoxious noise to God and many times even just a bothersome voice to others. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So even great giftedness spiritually can become completely meaningless if indeed there is no love present in the person's heart. He then says, verse three, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, so great sacrifices, personal sacrifice, dedication, great amounts of giving, we can do all that. He says, but if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. The idea is that we could make great sacrifices give our body to be burned, give away all of our goods. But if we didn't do it with the motive of love, the Lord says no profit in that for eternal reward. Now that's searching. Your whole life, you can be giving, giving, giving. And God says, when you get to heaven, well, that's not gonna survive the fires of testing for reward because there was no love in why you did that. That's a searching thing there. I want to make sure our motive's right so that we're rewarded accordingly, ultimately, for what we've done to serve the Lord. So in all things pertaining to spiritual life, the most important way is the way of love because the fruit of the Spirit, remember the Bible tells us, is actually 
love. So here as we come now to verse 4, Paul begins to describe by the Holy Spirit leading him this fruit of God's agape love. Well, what does that love look like when it's an operation in my life? Hopefully at times when it's at work in our lives, what does that look like? Well, these verses indicate it's going to produce certain behaviors, attitudes that translate into actions, and it can be seen in the practice of our daily living as a believer. So verse four to eight here again, they're not just beautiful statements of poetry. This is designed actually to be instead kind of a probing, convicting mirror that helps me come into reality is what it really should. Not poetry, but reality. God says, uh, how you doing there, Tony? This is what it really looks like. And, and you want to measure yourself. I want to measure myself once in a while against this to say, am I truly showing God's love in the way that I'm living with others? So he begins by telling us first there that God's agape love, what it looks like. The first thing, verse four, he says, is this love suffers long and is kind. Your translation may say there simply is patient I actually like the translation suffers long better because it really captures more the idea of what's there. You know, we can talk about, well, I'm being patient at a red light. Well, that's not the idea of this patience here. The idea here is actually suffering long. It's enduring under mistreatment. It's a term that speaks of love in our hearts. God's love gives us the ability to suffer through unpleasant treatment, unpleasant circumstances, and to endure them with a willingness to accept situations, whether it's with people or circumstances, that we don't really enjoy being in. And yet we suffer long through them for love's sake. Love will deal with unpleasant experiences that arise due to interacting with others. So that means bearing with difficult people. Bearing with patiently and kindly. Draining people. None of those exist, right? You don't know any of those. But loving them, bearing with them, high-maintenance people we talk about sometimes, mercifully allowing ourselves to be mistreated or hurt and patiently enduring it. This is what he's referring to here. Love suffers long in patience. I think the idea as well speaks of how love suffers long in patience, that love, this kind of love, is willing to restrain itself when necessary. The idea is that this love will make us be able to say no to ourselves and restrain ourselves for love's sake rather than be satisfying or getting our way in a given situation, right? We understand that. I mean, think how many times as parents you exercise that kind of love. You restrained yourself to do what was in the best interest of your children, right? You made huge sacrifices, many of them unnoticed and not even aware of, whether it was your sleep when they were infants or but we we restrain ourselves we we refuse satisfaction and fulfillment to ourselves and suffer loss in order to do what's in the best interest of another and then notice if that weren't enough he says this love suffers long patiently enduring and then after it suffers long for it suffers for a long time then what does it say it's kind now even if i'm able to suffer long the hard part on the end is still being kind Right. We can suffer long, suffer long, suffer long. But after I now my wife didn't chuckle. I, that really wasn't her. Since it's on video, we want to have evidence of that since we tape this service as well. But again, to actually be kind on the end of it, to suffer, suffer, endure, 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 and then be kind. 
Then, but that's what love does. Isn't that what God does? Think of the kindness of God. Think what we put God through, what he tolerates and bears up under. And then he's merciful and kind and benevolent still in so many ways that even after great mistreatment, it remains kind in its response to hurt, kind in its response to bothersome people or maybe draining people or rude people. That's the idea here. And that word kind that's used there in the language speaks of being actually useful or helpful. The idea is that love seeks to be helpful. That's the idea of kindness there, not just, oh, he's a very kind person. It actually speaks of active kindness, seeking to be a useful person in a way whereby you're blessing and serving other people. When love's operating in my heart, it will make me become a helpful servant. It will make me want to do things to assist other people, to show an act of kindness to do what's kind, to relieve a burden so that they don't have to do something, to take the load upon ourselves. That is just to treat people well. This is what God's love does in our hearts. He then goes on in our list to tell us next, verse 4, that this same love also does not envy. And of course, the word envy just speaks of being jealous of someone else's advancements. Seeing someone else be blessed or get ahead in some way and they're enjoying it and we're not enjoying the promotion they got or the possession they obtained or maybe some opportunity they've experienced and we're not enjoying it, but they are. Envy implies that you're angry about that, that you're angry that they're blessed or being advantaged in some way and you're not. And so you struggle with anger and resentment over that. He says, love doesn't do that. Because love wants what's best for other people so much, it's more pleased with the happiness of another person than it is the fulfillment or satisfaction of getting what it wants. Because again, this is a self-sacrificing love. So the idea there, love doesn't envy, that instead we would be happy for others. When we find ourselves being angry and resentful when others are blessed in ways that we're not, that's an indication God's love's not at work in our heart. He says love won't do that. Love instead will do the opposite. He then goes on to say, love also does not parade itself. The term there literally in some translations is is rendered a boaster or a braggart, the idea is. Love doesn't brag. It refers to the need of a person to draw attention to oneself. Love won't draw attention to itself. When love is at work in our heart, we won't perform to be noticed or receive recognition or to impress. True love can serve anonymously when god's love is at work in our heart we can even succeed without having to announce it or today's generation to post it right if you do social media we don't have to indicate to others we don't have to parade what's going on in our life or we don't have to parade there's no need to parade what we did or what we gave or how we sacrificed or what we accomplished Love doesn't do that because it's always thinking about, well, I don't want to make someone else feel bad. I don't want to make someone else feel bad. Maybe I did succeed or maybe this wonderful thing did. But, you know, do I have to broadcast that? Do I have to take pictures of that and make everybody see that? You know, I'll tell you, again, I've never done social media, so I'm not condemning it. My wife and children do it, and I know it has its blessings and its benefits. But one of the things to me that has always been a great concern about the thrust of social media upon our culture is one of the things it genuinely does, if you think about it, because now everybody knows everybody's business. Well, that's a whole other sermon I could 
preach on that, about everybody, and I don't think that's necessary. You know, years ago, before any of this existed, you know, think of it. There was a time when the, if you knew anything, you heard that the farmer's cow three properties down got stuck and a couple men had to – you didn't know what was even going on a, you know, a few miles or the next town over, let alone today. We know everything that everybody's doing all around the world. And what does that also translate to? Not just everybody knowing everybody's business and then everybody criticizes each other. Well, can you believe they're doing that? I can't believe they're doing that. They're so materialistic. They're on vacation again. Can you believe they're on vacation again? But see what's happening because everybody's showing everybody what they're doing. People are feeling angry and resentful. I haven't been on vacation in two years. They're in Florida again. They're at Disney World again. And what happens? Now I'm feeling bad and feeling resentful and people are miserable. And well, we got to do – they're doing that. They, they take their kids there every year. We don't take our kids ever. We, and then what's happening? Because everybody's got to parade what they're doing. To me, it's not sometimes very loving because, look – no, nothing wrong in and of itself. If you get to do good things, you're blessed. You, nothing wrong. The Bible doesn't demonize wealth. Our culture does. But the Bible doesn't, there's nothing wrong in and of itself to be wealthy or to be blessed or to have enjoyment. First Timothy chapter six says that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. But my concern is, is that when we parade it, and that's kind of what happens. We parade it, we have to broadcast it it's not always that loving sometimes because there are people then who feel inferior. They get disappointed. They feel bummed out. They see us doing this. They see we acquired that. They see us in our brand new car. And, and do, I don't need to know that. And so to me, this verse is very fitting in regards to this dynamic of what happens to some degree. And again, I just would encourage you as God's love's at work in your heart, you know, let it make you time to time take into consideration. You know, do I need to? Do I need to advertise that this good thing happened? Do I need to tell people? If it comes out, it comes out. But do I need to draw attention to it? Do I need to tell people these things or tell people you know, uh, things that necessarily may, in a sense, make me look like I'm advancing and they're not? You know, love sometimes, I think, thinks about that for the sake of others. He also says here about love in verse 4, he says also love is not, notice, puffed up, he tells us. Of course, the idea there is like we say somebody's got a big head, an inflated view of themselves. So the love of God at work in a heart makes us humble rather than makes us be proud of our importance. We are not walking in love when we allow ourselves to be exalted as superior over others. And listen, let me say, again, nothing wrong with order and authority. God gives people authority. God advances people. God sets up kings, tears down kings. I'm not saying it's wrong for there to be order, authority, but the danger is, is the mistake of when there's not love in my heart, then there's a sense of superiority. That doesn't exist. God teaches different ranks, different positions, but then God teaches, however, equality. That is, you can be the most powerful person in a company, or you could be the person who just got hired three days ago and is pushing the broom in the warehouse, from God's perspective, there's complete equality. Yes, there's authority, and there should be submission to authority, but there's not superiority, more important and inferior. No, God says there's equality. So love will never allow us to begin to, and again, think that we're you know, better than others. Or Again, we should have that down-to-earth attitude of, no, man, we're, just, we're, we're all the same here. 
And love at work in our hearts will give us that humble spirit where we associate with anyone. We don't want to appear as more spiritual. We don't want to appear as more superior, more special. We want others to feel encouraged around us. We don't want them to feel inferior or in some way uncomfortable. He then goes on verse five to describe more about this love by telling us love does not behave rudely. The idea there is discourteous, impolite. Love's not uncaring. Love takes in consideration the reality that there are other people on the earth than just me. There are other people in my house than just me. There are other people in my church than just me. Love has good manners. It's not rude, the Bible says. When love is at work in our hearts, we won't behave rudely. Again, to be considered, and that replies to how we relate to other people, right, in our family. If we're walking in love, we should not be behaving rudely with our family members in how we speak to them and how we treat them and relate to them. We should not be behaving rudely in work or behaving rudely in society. And I'll tell you, I think this applies as well, even among the public assembly. Again, keep in mind, Paul's writing this about Christians coming together from chapters 11 through 14. And that applies even the way we relate to each other in church, right? Love doesn't behave rudely. So that means when I assemble with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I try and use respect and good manners. I don't want to be a distraction to others. Paul's going to address that all in chapter 14, behaving rudely by distracting other Christians and not being sensitive to others in the body of Christ. And so when we're with each other as the Lord's people, we don't behave rudely out of love for each other. I don't want to distract other people. And we think about that because we're walking, hey, if I do that, that might create a distraction, and I don't want to create a distraction. So again, we think about these things because out of love for one another, we don't want to be rude. He then goes on to say, verse 5, love also does not seek its own. That speaks of just selfishness, being self-serving. It's not going to be pursuing its own rights. Love is not going to behave in a way that is self-seeking or self-serving. That's the opposite of love. Love's never going to demand its own way. Love's not going to be pushy and demanding. It's not going to seek what it wants. Instead, it should be doing the opposite, right? It should be sacrificing what it wants in order to bless and to serve others. So love, he says, will not behave in this way. Now, here's the searching part. To say that we love someone and then behave in a very selfish way towards them is lying to ourselves. To say I love somebody and then to be very self-serving and selfish in how I treat them or relate to them is a complete contradiction. And I'm li- I may be saying I love them, but God's saying, but you're not loving them because you're being self-seeking and you're being selfish. And let me just say this as well. If someone is saying to you, I love you, but then they're behaving in a very selfish way towards you, they don't love you. For those of you who are single, keep that in mind, especially young ladies. I raised three daughters. That's very important. So if some guy's saying, I love you. So they're, I love you. Please go to bed with me. I love you. No, he's not. He's saying, I love myself. And so therefore, I don't know how to be patient and suffer long and be kind and re- refuse what I desire because love doesn't seek its own. So again, important to understand when we're not loving, but it's also good to know when someone may be saying they love us but they really don't so that we're not misguided. He then says as well, verse five, that love is not provoked. 
easily angered. It speaks there in the term of being instigated or stirred up easily. The idea is we're not walking around with a chip on our shoulder, taking everything personal. Love won't allow us to be easily offended and hurt by everything. When we're walking in love, we're not going to be irritable. Ouch. Done that once or twice. The nickname Bear has come up in my household a few times. I don't know who, but it's happened a few times in my household. Again, the smallest offenses or irritations won't be things that are, uh, you know, where we're going to fly off the handle. And again, love does not get easily provoked or irritated. So love also is not going to be bothered by people as if they're an annoyance to us. I'm sure you've never had that experience in your life, but love won't do that. Or say, oh, what do you want now? Not them again. Oh, I'm going to walk the other way around the sanctuary chairs because if not, they'll catch me on the way out the door. And, and sometimes we, we look at certain people and we feel almost annoyed or bothered. He said, love won't do that. Love doesn't get easily irritated. Instead, love has lots of grace in its toleration towards people, even bothersome or people we don't agree with or, or perhaps dislike in some way. He then says as well, the end of verse 5, that love thinks no evil. Other translations render that, I believe it's the NIV renders, it keeps no record of wrongs. And the Greek there literally is an accounting term, a math accounting term for keeping accurate books, for keeping you know, orderly records. That's the idea there. Thinks no evil, does not keep orderly lists, accurate records of evil that has been done. That's the idea there. Love will not keep an inventory of wrongs and offenses that have been committed against us, right? Mental lists of who hurt us or how somebody hurt us. Love will not allow us to keep ammunition in the memory banks for future arguments, for future accusations, to bring things up later on and say, well, yeah, when you did this and remember, love won't do that. It doesn't keep a record of the wrongs. It won't allow itself to do that. Love doesn't hold on to the memory of past hurts or offenses. It relates to people in light of what's going on now. It does not relate to people in regards to errors or hurts or mistakes from yesterday or last week or last month or years ago, sadly. It doesn't keep records of wrongs. It makes the decision to let things go, to move on for a higher purpose, and that's the way of love. And so, therefore, it lets things go rather than keeping a documented record in the mind of them. Verse 6, he then says, love does not, notice, rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Why? Because sin, iniquity, hurts lives. It ruins people's lives. Sin destroys people. Therefore, love would never be happy when somebody's living wrong. That's important to remember. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. So if somebody's living in iniquity or, or there's sin going on in some way, love can never be happy about that. It would be greatly disappointed. There would be a sense of displeasure because it, it understands what you're doing is going to ruin your life. It is harming you. It is harming other people. So love is grieved over wrongdoing, over sin and iniquity. It doesn't enjoy as well when bad things happen to other people in that sense. You know, Redpath said this. I thought it was an interesting statement. He said, love does not delight 
in exposing the weaknesses of other people. It doesn't delight, rejoice in exposing the weaknesses of other people. But what does it do? He says on the opposite of verse 6, but love rejoices in the truth. That is, it finds pleasure when someone finds the truth out of what is right and when they turn and they live right. That's what love enjoys. Love celebrates and enjoys. Great, they found the right way to live now. Love's excited when somebody walks in truth and celebrates when people make healthy choices. Verse 7, he then goes on to say that this agape love bears all things. And that term bears there speaks of to put a roof or a covering over something to shield it. That is from rain or sun beating down upon it. It's a term that speaks of roofing something with a covering. So the idea is to provide protection. So he says this is something else that God's agape love does. Love protects from things that would harm. So it protects from things like resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness in relationships because it realizes I need to protect against those things or it's going to destroy my marriage. It's going to hurt my relationships with other people. So it shields from allowing those things to have entry into our relationships. It leads us to safeguard our loved ones and things that are important from being ruined and destroyed by unhealthy influences. And, and like a roof, right? It, that is, it absorbs the impact. Love bears all things. It absorbs in itself. It's willing to absorb itself in order to guard the negative impact upon others. So when love's at work in our hearts, it will lead us to shield others from what may be hard for them, right? It, it'll bear the burden for them. It, it'll step in as a covering you know, again, I have a wife and raised three daughters, and, and that's the idea. Out of love, I would try and be a covering them. I would try and shield them. I would shield my wife and, and shield my daughters at times from things that I didn't want them to have to deal with. So I would, out of love, try and shield them from it, be a protection. And you absorb it yourself in a way to be beneficial to others. So again, love bears all things, even in the sense of the reputation of others. It doesn't expose the faults and failures of others. It shields, it protects over. Peter said it this way, interesting, using a similar term. He said, love covers a multitude of sins. There's our term again, covers, shields. Love covers a multitude of sins, which means this. Love won't allow excess humiliation when someone fails. It covers a multitude of sins. It doesn't try and expose them and make it more obvious and evident someone's failure. Instead, love says, you know what? I want to protect their reputation. I don't want people to know that happened to them. I don't want people to be, and, and it covers sin in a way out of love to shield others from hu further humiliation. Love also covers in the sense, love having a multi, covering a multitude of sins, I think also implies the idea that we don't have to always have that need to get retaliation or to get, you know, confrontation. It's able to cover sins. All right, it happened, whatever. And you just kind of like, you let things go. You just let love cover it. I don't have to confront every time. I don't always have to get retaliation. Just the ability is just love can cover a multitude of sins. I'll just absorb it, man. I'll just absorb it and let it go. I don't have to have an argument over that or get all worked up. Or I'll just absorb it. And like a roof, you just absorb it yourself and allow there to be benefit to the other person. He then says as well there, verse 7, that love also believes all things. So it doesn't imply that love is naive. 
And I think that's an error of that I believe, you know, idea there. Well, love believes all things. You should, you should believe everything. Love is not gullible. Love's not foolish. That wouldn't be caring, right? How could you care about somebody and be gullible and naive? The Bible tells us that we are to walk in truth as well as walk in love. So love doesn't just accept anything it hears. Well, okay, if you say that, then I guess I believe it. Or if you're telling me I have to believe that, I guess I have to believe it because of who you are. No, no, no. That applies with God, but that's not going to apply with people. The idea here of love believes all things, the indication there is rather than be pessimistic or distrustful in our confidence towards others or always being critical or cynical or suspicious in our spirit towards others, love believes the best for others. Love believes the best in others until clear evidence shows otherwise. It's willing out of love to give the benefit of a doubt. Love is willing to trust. It's willing to give people a chance. It's willing to not just look at something happen and interpret to interpret through. Well, okay, according to my record of wrongs, which I don't keep, but according to my record of wrongs of that person who's very draining and bothersome, what they're doing right now, how do you know that? Love believes all things. Yeah, maybe they did it before, but love believe. Maybe they're not doing that this time. Maybe you're misinterpreting that this time because of the lack of love in your heart for them. Love believes the best until it sees clear indication of otherwise. It verifies and validates, if nothing else. It will keep us from being cynical towards people. It'll make us willing to trust. Love makes us willing to give people a chance to believe that they actually you know, can prove themselves if given an opportunity. And that's the idea going on where he then says, love also hopes all things. That is, it remains optimistic in its expectations. Love's willing to give confidence in better things ahead for people. I have a hopeful attitude. People can change. That person may do something different next time around. Love gives people a chance and hopes for the best outcomes rather than being pessimistic or becoming, again, cynical or sarcastic. Love believes in the power of God to change people and the possibility that anybody can change. So love has a hopeful attitude towards people. He then says as well, verse 7, love also endures all things. And that word endures means to bear up under a load. So back to this idea of earlier, it will deal with a lot of unpleasant circumstances and it will persevere through tough times. It keeps enduring. Look, marriages go through tough times. Families go through tough times. Relationships, friendships, churches, society, we go through tough times. Love doesn't give up. It doesn't check out. It doesn't, listen, love in your heart for other people is what defeats even suicidal tendencies. Because the lying, deceiving spirit of a suicidal tendency that the devil deposits in people's minds is to say, it's hard, quit, escape, check out. It doesn't matter what you're going to do to all the other people around you. When you escape and leave them living suffering because of the way that you chose to end your life, Love doesn't do that. Love says, you know what? No, I need to bear up under this, even though it is hard. I'm going to, because I love other people. I can't do that to other people. So love endures. 
It keeps pressing forward. It keeps going despite how hard. We all go through hard times in this life, but love doesn't walk away when it gets difficult. Love keeps walking forward, enduring through it with perseverance because of care for others. And that's why he concludes so beautifully in verse 8 by saying, love never fails. The Greek speaks of holding its place like an anchor. This is what love does. Love anchors a person. It makes them consistent and faithful because of their love for other people. In some ways, it's the root of faithfulness. It's why God is faithful to us because of his great love for us. Agape love don't wear out over time. It doesn't give up on people. It doesn't say, well, I used to love them, but I just, I just don't love them anymore. Well, that's not what agape love does. Agape love is unconditional, it's sacrificial, it's giving, and it works within us. It makes us remain anchored in our concern for others. It makes us always finish the job. Love, he says, never fails. The idea is because it cares about people so much, it refuses to fail them. It says, I cannot fail them. I've got to do whatever I've got to do to keep caring for them, to be faithful to this love and relationship. It's what keeps us anchored. Love, he says, never fails. Now, you notice how this love is measured foremost, not by what? Emotions and feelings. But when you look at the list, what's it describing? Actions, right? Very contradictory to the ideas we have about love. It's easy to think we love people because we feel strong emotions. It's easier to say, I love people or we love people with our words in flattering ways. And to a degree, love does have feelings. I'm not diminishing that. There's emotions involved. To a degree, we can express our love verbally. However, God teaches reality, which is this. Real, genuine love is expressed through attitudes that translate into actions. Love is something that's seen. It's something that's displayed by how we relate to people, how we treat people. Again, if you just read through that list, it's very clear. These are action words. It doesn't speak of emotions. It speaks of actions in how we live. First John chapter 3 says, by this we know love, agape. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So the Bible says, this is how we know clearly what love is. Not because of what Jesus said, because Jesus laid down his life served, sacrificed through his actions of doing those things that demonstrated love. And he says, in the same way, that's how we are to demonstrate love. He says, let us not love in word and tongue, but in actions. That's love. The way that we act displays the degree of love that we have in our heart towards other people. And he says, we're to love in truth. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter five, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. See, it's a path. Walk in love. You walk out the love of God. So how can I know, how can you know if we are walking in love? Well, it's often been said before, one of the easiest ways to do that is to take your name and stick it into this list where the word love is and see how natural it flows. Now, for the sake of not humiliating you, I'll torture myself as the object lesson. Verse 4. 
Tony suffers long and is kind. Tony does not envy. He doesn't parade himself. He's not puffed up. He doesn't behave rudely. Are you already ready to shout hypocrite? Right? Ouch. But see, that's the measuring way. We put our name into that list. And we say, man, how natural does that flow? Or how much do I go, hmm, man, I guess I'm not always loving. I guess I need to grow in the area of love still, God. I guess I'm, again, and I don't think this chapter is meant to condemn us. Oh, I'm so selfish and why bother? I think it's meant to convict us and to challenge us, to see the gap between God's ideal and my present reality and to see that's the standard and to say, Lord, please, I, I, I need help. I need you to produce the fruit of love in my life to a greater degree. I need to do a better job practically trying to walk in love. So, uh, again, where do we turn then when we see love lacking in our hearts, right? It's interesting, is it not, to see verse 4 through 8 and to realize, here's the beauty of it, that is a beautiful photograph, not of me, but of Jesus, Remember what I just did with our personal name? Watch this, verse 4. If you take a different name and put it in there, it fits perfect. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus was not puffed up. Jesus does not behave rudely. He doesn't seek his own. He was not provoked, thought no evil. Jesus didn't rejoice in iniquity, and, but he rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Jesus never fails. That fits really well, doesn't it? But see, that's the key there for becoming more loving. Man, how do I become more loving? It's not rocket science. Connect with Jesus. We got to connect with Jesus and stay more connected to Jesus because he is the source of this kind of agape love, only as remain in fellowship with the Lord Jesus is this fruit of love produced in our lives. Remember, Jesus said, abide in me or remain in me and you will bear much fruit. What's the Bible say? The fruit of the spirit is love. So I need to recognize, you need to realize this is supernatural love. It's not natural. I hope by this point you can look at that list and realize, yeah, that's not natural for me. I'm selfish. That, that's just not natural for me. It's supernatural. But Romans 5 gives us this beautiful promise that tells us this. It says the love of God, the agape of God, is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So what we need to do is genuinely come before the Lord and say, God, there's a real gap between the way you tell me to love and the way that I'm loving from time to time. So, Lord, I just pray your word says you will pour your love, pour your love into my heart supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. Give me your love. Make me more loving. Empower me to walk in love in consistency with what I know and what your spirit is able to empower me to do. So the answer is not to try and be more loving. Don't walk out of here today and try and do that. But instead, as we sing through this last song, perhaps to just in this moment say, Lord, would you pour your love into my heart to a greater degree by the power of your spirit? Let's stay.